I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 19. We'll be reading verses chapter 19, 13 through the end of chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, uh, we provide one for you because we want your eyes in the text as we're, uh, we're learning together. And so you can take that. It's on page 824 of the Bible in the few rack. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 19, 13 through 20, 34. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you 
go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us, and have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do? They said to him, Lord, Let her eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity pity, touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And you can be seated as we pray. Father, what a feast we have before us today. These rich stories so much that you have to convey to us. Of course, our hearts need to be open. Our ears need to be able to hear, our eyes to see, which is a work of your Spirit. So we're asking God 
by your spirit, work in us and through this time we have in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Michael was a people person. He loved people, was skilled with them. He had a strong work ethic, and he was very intelligent. This allowed him to succeed. When he started his own business, it thrived. And eventually he got to the point where he was able to sell it for a good sum of money. He made a good investment on those, the monies he made. And he was generous and frugal at the same time. And uh, he was able to use his discretionary time that he now had to volunteer for organizations or serve on boards. And there's Christy. Christy had uh, taken her lumps in life. But all these things had shaped her so that she had a heart of compassion. No matter who she interacted with, she was able to cause them to feel like they were valuable and important people. She had that kind of natural beauty that you don't need to dress up to look good. She was the kind of person who was great but didn't realize she was great. And then there's Linda. Linda has been working for 20 years on the line at the factory. And the hard work she's put in shows on her face, as do her early years of drug abuse. She looks like she's 65, but she's only 45. She was raised in a dysfunctional family and has moved from one dysfunctional relationship to the other. I want to ask you, of these three, who is the most valuable? Ah, we're Christians, and we're Canadians to boot. We know all of them are equally valuable, right? So let me ask the question a different way. Let's suppose they were to join our church. Who would you be the most excited about in your heart to have joining our church? Or if you saw them walk in as a visitor on a Sunday, who would you make a note? Oh, I need to make a beeline to make sure they feel welcome in our church. Or perhaps most tellingly, who do you feel like you need to be like. Men, do you feel like to really be of value, you need to be something like Michael? Women, do you feel like, unless I'm like Christy, I don't quite measure up. I don't quite have the value that others do unless I'm like Christy. Perhaps for many of us, these questions reveal what's really in our hearts. And I think for many of us, sadly, the way we value people is no different than the way the world values people. And God, in his grace, has a word for us this morning. 
you may have noticed it's a long passage. Maybe, just maybe, one of you was starting to go, oh, I need to sit down soon, or you tuned out for part of the passage reading because it was so long. 52 verses, I think, right? I want to just kind of briefly summarize the five different stories that are here because there's actually a very intentional structure, I think, here. So as I just summarize the five different stories, I want you to see if you can see what the structure is. Story number one, some little children come and the disciples shoo them away. But Jesus says to them, come and accepts them. That's 19, 13 through 15. Then in 1916 all the way through 2016 is the second story. A rich young man walks in and he wants to know how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And he ultimately walks away from it. Rejected, so to speak. And in the explanation or the discussion that ensues after that we hear these words, the last will be first, and the first last. Story number two. Story number three really isn't a story, it's a statement, verses 2017 through 19. Smack dab in the middle, structurally, of these five stories. Jesus speaks of his coming death and resurrection. And then the fourth story In 20, verse 20 through 29, 28, I mean. Here, the disciples start to get into a little tussle about which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. These disciples who've given everything to follow him. And in the discussion that ensues, Jesus concludes, whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. And then the last story, the end of chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. Two blind men crying out for God to have mercy, and the crowds rebuke them, try to, so to speak, shoo them away. But Jesus stops, and he heals them. Did you catch the structure? Story number one, someone unexpected is accepted. Story number two, someone expected is rejected. Middle story. Story number four then, someone expected is corrected. Story number five, someone unexpected, again, is accepted. It seems, as we look at it, that this, these five different units have been strung together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Matthew to teach us something about who gets into the kingdom of God. Who is it that God welcomes into his kingdom? And the answer might be something different than what we expect. Who is it that will be great in God's kingdom? 
And the answer might be different from what we expect. And right at the center of all this is this story of Jesus' death and resurrection. That has something to do with all of this. So, let's dig in and see just what God has to say about who is valued in his kingdom. Who gets in. Who is great in his kingdom. As I mentioned, it starts with this short story in 19, 13 through 15. There's uh, parents who are, who are bringing their children so that Jesus can lay his hands on them and pray. Now, back then it wasn't kind of the kid-centric day it is today. You know, today a politician wants to have his picture taken with a baby or kneeling with a child because, you know, it shows that they're, uh, you know, this is a valuable thing, right? We, we value children. In those days, children were... I think they were loved, but they were kind of tolerated for a time because they didn't offer anything valuable to society as a child. It wasn't until they grew up and reached their potential that they had value. And so when the parents are bringing them, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus got a lot of people to heal. He's got a lot of things to do. We're headed to Jerusalem. Hey, out of the way. This is a royal waste of time. But Jesus stops them. And he calls the little children to his midst. And he says, let the little children come unto me. Why? He says, not for to them is the kingdom of heaven, but for to such is the kingdom of heaven. You know, in other words, he's not saying that every child is belongs to the kingdom of heaven until at some point they become an adult and then maybe they're not anymore. That's not what he's talking about. He's, not, he's saying, for to such, people like a child. Like a child in what way? Well, I think from the story, like a child in that they're the types of people that the disciples would shoo away. Maybe today, they're the types of people that if we are pregnant with them, We would abort them. You know, the little girl in China. The Down syndrome boy in North America. The child conceived out of wedlock. And Jesus says, for to such is the kingdom of heaven. He is telling us that his eternal kingdom is populated by people that society doesn't value. Enter the rich young man, the second story from 1916 to 2016. Now, the rich young man is just the opposite of those little children. He's got it all going for him. He is rich. He is moral, right? And he has a spiritual sensitivity about him. His first question is about eternity. And he's concerned not just about this world, but the eternal state. You know, if the disciples were shooing away the children, they're probably tripping over themselves to get this guy. I mean, this is an all-star. If only he would come to the kingdom. And then he, he asks this question, Teacher, what good, dude must, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, now, they're like, this is it. Star convert. Momentum is building. Go get him, Jesus. But do you know what Jesus sees? He sees his heart. 
Jesus doesn't focus as much on, I want eternal life, as much as, what must I do? What good deed must I do? You see, this man has a sense that if he's just told what he needs to do to get this, he can do it. He's a great moral man who succeeded at all he's touched. Why can't he succeed at this as well? So Jesus drills down into his heart. Keep his commandments, he says. First he asks him, you know, what do you think of me? Why are you, why are you approaching me? Is this, this is actually about me. But, but then he says, keep the commandments. Okay, which ones? And then Jesus lists six different commandments. Now when he does this, it's more important to note what he doesn't include than what he does include. If you walked up to a uh, Toronto sports fan and you said, tell me, what are the greatest teams, the greatest sports teams in the city of Toronto? And they said, the Raptors, the Blue Jays, and the Argonauts. They're saying a lot more by what they leave out, right? That's exactly what Jesus does here. You see, he gives six commandments. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are ordered. There's four commandments at the beginning. No gods before me, no graven images, uh, don't misuse the name of Yahweh, and keep the Sabbath, are all focused on our relationship with the Lord. The next six commandments are all focused on our relationship with one another. Jesus focuses on those last six commandments and doesn't mention any of the first four, which is why he sums it up with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19, right? But he actually only quotes five of the six commandments. Do you realize or did you notice which one he left out of those last six commandments? You shall not covet. So he's left out all the Old Testament teaching about the primacy of your love and devotion to God. And then when he talks about our relationship with one another, he leaves out one that deals with the love of money. In how he frames the list of commandments, he exposes this man's heart and says what's really going on in your heart is that you love money instead of God. Well, does the man pick up on what's going on here? Has this man's heart who's just been filleted and laid open, does he realize, oh, I am a broken sinner. What can I do? No. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Give me that little to-do list that I need to complete, and I'll get after it. Okay. A to-do list is what you're after? I'll give you the one command that you can't obey unless your heart actually has changed. Unless that idol has been ripped from you and it's been replaced with a love and devotion to the Lord. He says, really, he says two things. Get rid of all your money, give to the poor, which relates to the coveting, right? And then he says, and come, follow me which relates to your first priority of the love of the Lord. 
The rich man can't do it in his own strength. With his little self-made righteousness, I I can do it. He can't do it. And so he's saddened and he walks away. You see the difference between those little children that we need to be like and the rich man? Rich man's got all that this world values. Hey, I've got it together. Little children passed over, overlooked. Jesus says, for such is the kingdom of God. And to him, he says, you need a heart surgery in order to come. And then he instructs his disciples. The man's walked away, but Jesus isn't done in this conversation. So he starts instructing his disciples. And he says, look what he says there in verse 23. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I just want to point out here, there's this little story that circulated and people latch on to it, that there was a gate that was called the eye of the needle and camels had to kneel down to crawl through it. It's just, it was made up. It's not true. If someone told you that, I'm sorry to ruin that for you. But no archaeologist, no ancient historian has ever found anything like that. This is saying something's impossible. You take the biggest animal you had around that time or in that area and say it's got to go through the smallest hole possible. It's not possible, which is the conclusion that the disciples reach, right? So Jesus is saying something certainly about having great wealth, having money. Money has a tendency to make us dependent upon ourselves, doesn't it? And money has a tendency to cause our hearts to be drawn to all the things of the world. And that's why not just here, but throughout the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, it warns us against the love of money. But I think given the context, Jesus is saying something more than just an issue with money. He's saying, if you have what the world values, it is hard for you to enter the kingdom of heaven because you're going to be tend to see, I'm one of the valuable ones. I'm one of the needed ones. I'm the one that people are always asking for, and I'd be a star recruit for God's kingdom. Tell me what I need to do, and I can get in. Which is why, for people who have what the world values, it's hard then to swallow what Jesus says in verse 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You got a lot of money or whatever else it is that the world values? With man, it's possible. God, I'm doing you a favor. Or even if I sense, hey, yeah, I do need you a little bit, God. Uh, Yeah, but hey, you're not making out bad by helping me out, right? No, impossible with man, possible with God. Something that those like the little children get and the rich men don't. Well, Peter pipes up. We've left everything and followed you. Seize the opportunity, golden moment. He's just talked about this rich young man taking him to task. (laughs) We're doing all right here, right, God? Jesus is really gentle in how he answers Peter. These poor fishermen, tax collectors, ragtag group, now are feeling like, hey, we're of some value to somebody. This is, we're doing well. And he affirms that those who 
give things up in their pursuit of Christ, Christ will reward. There is no ultimate loss in the sacrifices we make for Christ. And he affirms that these particular 12 will have a particularly special role in his eternal kingdom as they judge the 12 tribes. But then he comes down to his point, his his rebuke to them, his corrective to them in verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In order to help them understand that phrase, he tells them a story. He says, there was a man who owned a vineyard, and he needed some work done in that vineyard. Now, where I lived in East Texas, um, there were, in each town, there was a place where the day laborers would gather in the morning. They'd all come out. They might bring a shovel or whatever, but they were dressed in their work clothes. And if you had a construction site or a landscaping company, you'd go. If you needed a few extra workers to get a job done, you'd pick them up. You'd agree on a day's wage, and you'd go, and you'd get to work on with them. That was kind of how it worked in that society, too. There was a location where all the laborers would kind of gather and say, you know, I need a day's wage if, if you're willing to you know, take me, and we'll agree on a price. So the, the, the master of the vineyard comes, and he says, okay, uh, you guys look like you're good hard workers. They say, okay, here's what we need. We need a day's wage, a denarius, and all right, we've negotiated. We figured it out. We know what's fair. Let's go and get to work. That was at 6 a.m. The workday was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Three hours later, the third hour at 9, he goes and gets some more. They don't negotiate. They just come with him. We hear the same thing happens at the ninth hour. So it was at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And we're thinking, okay, he's got all the workers he needs. It's going at this interval of threes. The next interval hits 6 o'clock when they're done. So the group's done. But... The surprise in the story is he goes at 5 o'clock, the 11th hour, and he finds some people standing there. I don't know if they did this in Canada. I just know it was this excruciatingly painful experience in American gym classes where they pick teams. (laughs) And for a good part of my life, I was the nerd. I've never been particularly athletic. And so you sit there, and you watch, and you watch. Now, I wasn't usually the last one picked, but I was close enough that when I was standing in my, on my team, I was looking at, you know, the poor chubby one who's not being chosen or whatever else, and you feel bad for him, and you want to pick him because you just don't want him to always be picked last. Well, this is exactly what's going on with these people, right? He asks them, why are you standing idle? They say, no one's hired us. Why do you think no one's hired them? Probably because they're so muscle-bound and they look like they could, you know, pick 100 grapes in 10 minutes or something like that. I don't know what the right ratios are there, but... (laughs) No, because they look dweeby. They look like they couldn't be of any help, of any value to anybody who'd want to hire a day laborer. And there's only an hour left in the day. They're going, oh, rejected again. Got to go back home and probably not feed my family. And the master comes and he says, you come and work in my vineyard for an hour. Sure, that's great. We're coming. We don't care what we get. We get to work. Finally, someone picked us. And then it comes time for the payment. And it's arranged with the foreman that these last people will be paid first. 
and he gives them a whole day's wage so that they can eat and their family can eat that day. He gives them a whole denarius. Generous. Goes on, is paying all their... Well, the people were hired at 6 a.m. They're thinking, hey, that's good news. If they're getting denarius, think of what we're getting. This guy's generous. Got picked by the right guy today. And they get, and they get a denarius too. And they're upset. And they grumble. And the master says, look, we agreed on a price. This was fair. You received what's fair. I chose in my generosity to bless these others. Don't grumble against that. And then he makes the statement again, though, in inverse order. There in verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. It's not talking about monetarily, because they all got the same amount, right? Talking about something much deeper than that, what's going on in their hearts. You see, there are those here this morning who feel like when God picks his spiritual team, he'd probably pick you last. Okay, Billy Graham over there, come on. But he's not, he probably wouldn't even want you on his team. You think. And God is saying here, no. Actually, I want to give you a privileged position where I show your unique value to me. Where the world doesn't value, I pull you in and I give you the full wage. And those people who experience that grace have such joy and gladness at what the master has given them. They delight in him and there's a there's a, a abounding joy. And they're first. And those who said, well, I earned it. We agreed on our wage. I got what I earned. Don't have that same tenderness and joy and enthusiasm in their heart. So even though they're first, the strong, the hard workers, they're last. You see what Jesus is getting after? What he values in his kingdom. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is on page 952. First Corinthians 1. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See what God values? It's the exact opposite 
of what the world values. It's people who sense, I'm not the straight A. I'm the broken arrow. And who realize, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The third story I will uh, look at at the end in verses 17 through 19 it's that middle story. And then there's the fourth story, right? A mother comes to Jesus. Now, those of you who work in the school system know what's about to happen, right? <laughs> Little Jimmy and Johnny are such good followers of you, Jesus. I think they might deserve to be at the privileged place in your eternal kingdom. Jesus, I love his response. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? It just turns everything they're thinking on their head because his kingdom is about, he just talked about his own death that's coming. The, the imagery from the Old Testament of drinking a cup is drinking the cup of God's wrath. He's like, guys, do you realize you're trying to be the greatest and I've just told you about how I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Are you able to drink this cup? Let's change our thinking here. And they're like, oh, yeah, we can, we can drink that. We got it. We're, we're your star students, right? Not knowing what they're talking about. Now, Jesus says, look, you're going to taste that same cup. James, you're going to die a martyr's death. John, you're going to die in exile. You'll taste suffering for my sake. But, he says, it's not for me to assign those things out. Which, just as an aside, is a really interesting thing as you understand the dynamics within the Trinity. But that's a sermon for another day. But then the other disciples get wind of what's going on, right? And they're none too pleased that these two guys were trying to take the shortcut to the top, circumvent them, and, you know, climb over them on the ladder of God's kingdom, so to speak. And so there's some uh, discord breaking out. And so Jesus calls them together. And he says in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You guys, you're all concerned about who's going to be the top-ranking guy in my eternal kingdom. You've got it all wrong. Your hearts are backwards. What you need to do is to be a servant and to be a slave. Think about me, what I've come to do. If I'm having any influence on you at all, be as me and be a servant and give your life. Now, this isn't talking about like, Ooh, the way to become great in God's kingdom is to be the guy who, you know, takes down the tables and set up the chair. So I'm going to do that so I can say, look at me, I'm the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's the wrong approach, right? This is about not focusing on how do I become the greatest and filling the role of the greatest and changing your heart and your mentality to be how do I serve like Jesus served. That's what he calls his disciples to. You see again, it's not like the Gentiles. It's not like the nations where they're all clamoring to climb. 
Think about that. A servant, a slave, giving ourselves for others. We should be doing that within the church. We should be doing that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And what a difference it would make if we as believers were living like Jesus did. Well, then, the fifth story there at the end of chapter 20. So you got these disciples who have, have given up a lot, and he's having to correct them. You got your expectations all wrong. You think because of who you are and how much you've given up, you're going to be great. No, you've got to be servants. And then a story that kind of mirrors the first story, right? Two blind men, they just have one plea. Look how great I am, Jesus. Don't you think you could do us a favor? If you heal me, you know what I can do for your kingdom, Jesus? They have one plea. Have mercy. Have mercy, son of David. And what do the crowds think of these blind men? No value to society. Not, you know, last ones picked. Shoo, quiet down. But they keep calling. Have mercy. And Jesus, like he did with the children, comes over to them. And he stops, asks what they need, and heals them. And they follow him. The rich man didn't follow him. Come and follow me. He doesn't. He doesn't even have to say it to them. They do. First will be last. Last will be first. I know. I know there are people here today who feel when you walk into church you feel like I probably don't belong here I don't have it all put together I mean I, I can kind of make it look that way for a little bit but you know everyone else is kind of on a different spiritual plane than me they probably know or, or if they knew what I was like man They'd probably want to shut me down or push me out. I'm like the blind guys. I just, just lay me over in the corner. Can't do much. Spirit's good. I know there's people here. And you know I'm talking to you. Or not me. God is speaking to you. Through this passage. And he's saying, you get it. You get it that with man it's impossible. And with God it's possible. You get that for such is the kingdom of God. You get blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Welcome. You're mine. Here's the denarius. Here is the kingdom for you. I stop, I heal you, and you follow with great joy. And then there's others of us who are more like the rich young man. The hand we were dealt in life has allowed us to have a certain level of success, esteem in the world, monetarily in our families or whatever else. And God says to us, 
be careful. Be warned. You need to count those things actually as a loss. Those are going against you and your ability to just humble yourself and depend upon me and cling to me with joy and follow. So we who are in that situation need to take great care that we're not thinking that we can do something to get into God's kingdom. We need to realize that those things that the world would count for us are counted as rubbish and loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I told you I'd come back to the middle portion. It's interesting that these, these you know, two sets of stories that mirror each other so nicely have right smack dab in the middle this, what seems like a random prediction of his coming suffering. You know, like they're doing that. Sometimes you're cut and paste on the computer and you like accidentally let down the mouse in the wrong spot and it's right in the middle of a sentence. It feels a little bit like that here. But then you see it in its context and you realize that's not at all what's going on. This is at the epicenter of this important teaching. There's something having to do with Jesus' death and his resurrection that's really important to all of this. And I think we get the, the dots are connected for us there in verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 26. Where it says, here's how you're supposed to be, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of you have been in a situation where you were being held against your will, and the only way you would be freed from being held against your will is if somebody agreed to pay a ransom for you? Neither have I. But for, for all of us, really, biblically, as it explains our condition, when Adam sinned, it says there began a reign of sin and death in this world, a dark reign that is connected with the power of the evil one, Satan. And it teaches that this same evil reign is going on in our own hearts. We are captive to our sin. If you don't believe me on that, figure out what you think is righteousness and just try and do it for a day or two. You'll fall on your face. You won't be able to live up even to your own standards. We are all under this reign. We're captive. And the Bible says the only way we can be freed from this reign of sin and death, from our captivity, is if somebody comes and pays the price to redeem us or ransom us out of that. But the only price is to actually take on the penalty of all that, to absorb the wrath of God against sin and evil. And in order to do that, you have to be human, because you have to be able to bear the penalty that a human owes. But you also have to be perfect, because you got to be absorbing wrath that doesn't rightfully belong to you so you can have it. That's what Jesus did. He bought us back. He ransomed us by his blood. And do you know what that means? If he ransomed us, we are all in the same boat. We are all captives. Whether we're like the little children or whether the rich young man, we are all alike captives that cannot be freed unless the ransom is paid. As captives, we're in no position to say, hey, look how much we gave up for you, Jesus. We're not in a position to haggle for our wages and say, okay, if you want me in your vineyard, here's what you're going to have to pay me. We're not the types of people who are going to come and say, hey, look at all the good I've done. Maybe I could be in the top spot in your kingdom. 
No. We're going to be in that position that says, have mercy on me, O Lord. I am captive. I need my ransom to be paid. We are all alike captives to our sin. We are all alike beggars before Jesus. And the advantage that those who don't have all that the world values have is that they might see that a little better than those of us who have some of the things that the world values. And so all of us need to humble ourselves and see our desperate state because of our sin and see what Jesus has done for us and cling to him and follow him. The rich young man didn't get it. The disciples, they barely got it, though they would come to understand. The two blind beggars, they got it. May God give us strength and grace to get it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who feel like they're the ones who'd be picked, passed over when the teams are picked this morning, that you would let them know that in your kingdom the values are totally different than the world's. And may they know your love for them, your valuing of them, and the advantage they have in your kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And for those who are in a privileged position, many here today, I think in some ways including myself, show us how to count these things as rubbish, as lost, and not to delude ourselves in the thinking that with man it's possible. Thank you for your blood. The blood of your son paid as a ransom for us. May that ransom shape our lives. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I got one more. I can't think of a better song to sing together after this passage than this song we're about to sing. So just... Meditate on its words as you sing it from your heart.